if you think about any kind of active social movement that challenges state power or yeah. other kinds of power there's often a sense of being surveilled and and being threatened and white white uh supposedly pilot was there in liberation was in the air yeah 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 white pilot was there in town in the first place to personally squelch any sort of uprising yeah. and you know here comes jesus riding in on parade day mm-hmm. you know my palm sunday talk was titled go big or go home <laughs> there you go <laughs> nice you know because that's that's what he did so i think yeah. he was clear he was poking the bear and it was only a matter of time check me out go home. <laughs> yeah Yes. I'm surprised he made it through the whole week. (laughs) Really? Right. Oh, my goodness. Welcome to episode 128 of Pub Theology Live, a weekly conversation on life and faith over a craft brewed pint, a fine wine, or whatever happens to be in your glass. You can catch new episodes weekly as Brian Ogan and guests address and engage what's happening through a theological lens, usually with a good brew in hand. And you can help support and show some love for Pub Theology Live by becoming a porter, a supporter, a porter, a supporter on Patreon. That was a Freudian slip. I'll explain that later. Uh, Take your toe in at the shot glass level, just $2 a month. And, you know, we got some other levels. We even even have a level for if you want us to come do a live show in your town. So yeah, that's check it out. That's there. a serious level. That's a serious level. That's that's for the hard that's for the hardcore folk. Uh, visit patreon.com slash PT Live to get started. A big thank you to our current patrons as well. Absolutely. And you can join our conversation on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram using hashtag PT Live. Follow at Pub Theology on those platforms and check out some video clips from the show on IGTV or watch us on YouTube. For extra content. Well, today uh, we talk Holy Week. It is Holy Week, uh, Central Week on the Christian calendar, and we'll ask some questions. What is the significance, or was the significance, of Jesus entering Jerusalem in the manner that he did? Uh, What about his actions at the temple? And why did Jesus die? And and why has this event of his death and, and subsequent resurrection been so central to the heart of the world's largest religion. Is it the world's largest religion? I just kind of said that. I don't think that we are. I don't. One of the world's largest one. religions. Let's just let's just Amended. cover our butts and say one. Amended. I think there are more Buddhists around. I think there are more Buddhists, right? Could be, could be. And to help us probe deeper, and you can tell we need help, uh, we are joined <laughs> yeah. again today by Keisha McKenzie. She is originally from London and has studied in some wonderful places and been doing some excellent work. And she believes that all people have inherent worth and dignity. We deserve a world where we can all flourish and that people of faith should be helping to make that world real. 
She is currently director of digital strategy on the program team at Auburn Seminary in New York, among other things. Welcome, Keisha. Hey, good evening. Great to have you back with us. And uh, so, uh, hang on, I just looked it up. It is Christianity. I, that's, I thought so. Yeah. So this is well. This is this is the last. I don't know. You know, it's Wikipedia. So you know, <laughs> might change by next week. But as but as of 2012, uh, Christianity 31 and a half percent, Islam 23.2, unaffiliated 16.3, then Hinduism, then Buddhism, and down we go. I just you know I just had that thought that it's the largest, and then I thought I should really look that up and not just assume because I haven't looked at that in a while. Good, good thing we're professional clergy. We we are on top of things. Well, what are we drinking tonight, friends? Uh, we let our guests go first. What you got, Keisha? I got water. Good for you. Mm. Thank you. Got to stay hydrated. Clear, clean conscience. Clean conscience, pure in heart. Cool <laughs> glass of water. Well, I am. I am in my final week of giving up alcohol for. But is Lent technically over? When is Lent over? Is it's it over? over on, it's over on Sunday, Easter oh. Sunday. All right. So my last week, which is probably why I made that you know porter slip earlier because I can really do with a porter. Yeah. You know, right now, but I'm I'm drinking a, a Trader Joe's orange peach mango juice, and seriously, it's like half juice, half water with ice, and this thing is still too sweet. Wow, it's insane. Uh, a lot of juices are just sugar, but after right. drinking sugar and water, yeah, after drinking water all day, like, I need something with a little taste. So I poured up some of this and tasted it. Poured half of it back in. <laughs> Added, added half a glass of water to my scoots, and it's still too sweet. It's insane. Wow, diluted just a bit. But next week, that's going going back going back to some beer next week. I can't hardly wait. We all look forward to that for you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. it's, I'm, I'm getting a little edgy. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this week I am drinking a Spinal Tapper Double IPA from Right Brain Brewery. Do these folks like pay you for advertising? I, really, I just think they should. They really should. They really should. We're <laughs> this hoping. One, this one has double. This one has double significance because my very first pub theology group met at Right Brain Brewery up in Traverse City, Michigan, and then secondly, and this is more seriously, my brother actually had a spinal tap today uh, to determine Ooh. health things going on with him. So, prayers out to my brother Jason and uh, absolutely. Yeah holding space now would he would he think of you drinking a beer called spinal tapper on the day he got a spinal tap would he think that um you know um, kind of honoring what he's going through or just in poor taste like how would he interpret it because that's all that really matters yeah i i had that internal conversation he doesn't listen to the show so i'm not too worried about that i think he'd probably roll his eyes but deep down appreciate okay. it well, well there you go all it right. seems like a very fraternal thing to do yeah, exactly yeah. I mean, if he if it were reversed, I would be honored. You know, <laughs> there you go treat treat others as you want to be treated. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. that's totally what the guy meant. <laughs> hey, totally. you weren't there. You don't know. Just for Brian. <laughs> it's like it's like we weren't there when Jesus rolled into Jerusalem. We don't know. Uh, don't that's know. not going to keep us from discussing. This is true. <laughs> it never has. Never, never has. has. Never will. <laughs> 
So uh, Holy Week this year coincided uh, with tax day, April 15, and our opener says, I would feel better about paying my taxes if, and then fill in the blank. I actually feel fine about paying my taxes. Um, what would make it even nicer were greater transparency about how they were used, including the dark budget that goes to the military and that's about all we get to know about it. Even though we can see the outcomes in the world, I would feel a lot better if I knew. Actually, I... Would you though? I mean, I, is, that's what I'm saying. Like I'm <laughs> guessing my answer as it comes out of my mouth because knowing is one thing and having the power to change what happens is a, is a separate thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes for some things it's best we sleep better when we don't know, you know. Yeah. I don't necessarily subscribe to ignorance is bliss. I think we should be an informed populace, but at the same time, it's like, I don't know that I want to know all the really right. details of where those billions are going. I, th I think there's something about transparency and um, making people feel like they don't have power. So there's, there's some sort of inverse relationship between transparency and empowerment that's really strange. But I was reading an article yesterday that talked about how um, when there are open troves of documents, people love to have things leaked, but they don't like to read the stuff that's leaked. Yeah. So, so you, can, you can have a situation where authority figures don't tell you what's happening, and then you want them to tell you, but when they tell you, you don't care. You don't bother. <laughs> so. and, then, and then the other piece of that is depending on where you are in your level of like, you know, emotional, mental maturity and, and consciousness, you know, information can either be, like you said, used to shed light and make positive changes or it can be weaponized mm -hmm. um, and contribute to, you know, fear and panic and all those things. So mm -hmm. it, 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 it always, it also depends on where the reader is mm -hmm. as to what the information is. Yeah. Cause we yeah. can, we'll all interpret it differently. I'd feel better about paying taxes if, um, you know, the billionaires and corporations had to pay the same percentage that I do. Like the fact that Amazon, the richest company in the world, didn't really have to pay taxes. Right. You know. it's, a, it's a little infuriating. It's that's, a little bit. That's, <laughs> thank you for being so gentle, but no, that I'll, that pissed me off. I'm like, are you serious? I, you know, I, I owed for the first of my life, I owed taxes last year. And I'm a minister who's not making a whole lot of money, but you know this corporation and you know has more money than knows what to do with, and you know, and run by the world's richest man. Who, after he's divorced his wife and split assets, he's still the world's richest man. Wow! Right? <laughs> and they're not paying taxes. I yeah, that that's. I'd feel better if if they got the pay. It'd solve a lot of problems. Yeah. 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 I would, I would echo what you both have said. You know, I'm, I'm happy to pay uh, my taxes uh, when I know that they're going towards uh, public schools, libraries, roads, infrastructure um, programs uh, to help people in financial distress, uh, you know, food programs and um, all of that good stuff. And I would love it. To, I would love some of it to go to national healthcare and I would love a lot less to go toward military and agreed with the 
um, comment about transparency. And also, how about we audit the military budget? You know, there's no real audit of that. There's no, and when there's none, no audit, there's no responsibility. You know, there's no oversight. Did you just Related. say national health care? We're not Canada, you know. What, what are you <laughs> no, I said I would be happier paying my taxes if I knew it was going toward. Uh, okay. Something like that. I got a little confused just now. Sorry. The, the original statement says I would feel better about paying my taxes if. So oh, I would feel I'm better right. if I knew it was going toward national health care. If we had a national health care system. Yes, you're right. But I did start by saying the things I was happy that it's currently going toward. And then okay. I shifted gears mentally without saying it. Yeah, and and the rest of us who are not in your head got, yeah. got a little confused. I thought you were right there with me. Uh, I thought I missed but, a memo. But both of you are in congregations at the moment, right? Yes, correct. Do you do does your congregation do your congregations have a tradition of sharing where the church budget goes? Um, when you say of that, like they they like um, well, because congregations can do things differently under different ministers. But okay. I'm just curious about whether your congregations also have budgetary transparency. Uh, yes. And, and the, the board. So basically how our budget works is we have a finance team made up of anyone who's wanted to be in the finance team that will create the budget. And then the board also has to improve it. And all these people are congregants. Mm -hmm. um, and so in that way, they have a say. Mm -hmm. um, some churches then take that to the congregation for votal and approving. We don't, we don't do that. We, but yes, um, congregants, as represented by board members, have a say in deciding that. Mm -hmm. How about you, yeah. Brian? Uh, we we um, make our budget available, uh, both in terms of actual income and expenses, uh, down to every penny um, that's available to folks at our annual meeting, but also upon request throughout the year. And yes. the congregation then has to vote um, on the proposed budget for the coming year. And so our leadership team sort of establishes the budget, but the congregation does vote to approve it. So they know how much is going to salary, how much to facility, how much we're giving to our causes that we support, um, and how much we have in the bank and all of that jazz. I appreciate it. And it, I know it wasn't on the script, but it was a question around expecting similar things of civic engagement as we do of religious engagement. Agreed. Great Agreed. call. Yeah. But, you know, uh, to that point, there are some religious institutions that are not that transparent by any stretch of the imagination. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's that too. It would, it, it, it would be nice if, if we all were. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think it's especially important in the church today because uh, people are more and more suspicious of the church, and giving I think is down across churches as a whole. And so, I think we have to be responsible with the money that people entrust us with, and show where it is going and what we are doing with it. And then people have a better grounds for deciding how much they want to invest financially into the community. And I think I think that's really important mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. same i saw a, a an item today about two people in france who've committed significant funds to the repair of notre dame yeah yeah let's talk about that so this just happened uh uh yesterday yesterday yeah yeah it was it it was weird um so i i i 
had mixed feelings about it. Of course, I mean, I've I've been there a couple times. It's it's a magnificent, just you know, awesome piece of architecture. I mean, the whole place is a work of art in and of itself, including the pieces of art in it. Um, but I read something on the Atlantic today that was interesting that said it's fascinating that France, which has really become this this bastion of secularism, right. has this like, you know, holy symbol as like one of its central cultural pieces. And yeah. and, and I could see that people were were very emotionally distraught uh, by what happened. And and I get it. I was feeling that some, you know, as as I was watching video footage of the fire and, and the spire fall and all of that. But then the fires put out and they're having a vigil in front of what's of the cathedral. And I was kind of perplexed by that because, hmm. you know, traditionally vigils for me are like, you know, when somebody dies and you want to honor their memory or, you know, you're, you're holding for maybe someone who's ill or ailing and wanted to get better or something. They're going to rebuild this thing. Like we know that it's already been announced to Keisha's point, you know, millionaires are donated why are we having a vigil for really kind of what's a building and what and I, really and I, and I floated that I was, I was talking to this uh with with my girlfriend Sarah and she said she said vigil is probably not the right word to use but you know the fact that here are these folks having this massive group occasion to process their emotional response around this thing it uh, which again, I don't know if tragedy is the right word to use, but in some senses, some sense, you know, given it's a piece of historic art that was lost, yes. But I felt I felt it was a little, I don't know, a little much. I know what you're saying, but uh, I, I for a building, <laughs> I, I don't know though. It it's such a such a centerpiece to the city um, and to and to really um, all French people i think in a way um it's an icon you know and whether people are secular or not it represents something of their own heritage their own culture it's um you know paris is a one of the top world cities and that's a huge piece of it and you know if the eiffel tower had been accidentally hit by an airplane you know or, or strong winds knocked it down i think it'd be similar feeling yeah, there's, I think there's something to be said for an, a cultural icon that's not a religious icon. And I think there's also uh, a factor in the, the, the length of history that's represented in the building. So yes, it's a building. And it's also representative of an entire era. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure that America is old enough to have invested in its structures such emotional intensity. I think maybe the only buildings that might be similar would be the White House itself. I'm not sure I can think of other major American structures. Yeah, maybe, maybe the, the Capitol. Bridge. Maybe, maybe the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, maybe, certainly. Maybe. Um, the Empire. All, all the buildings that building. get tore up in disaster movies. There maybe. you go. <laughs> <laughs> but but I don't know that we have a couple of centuries invested in in the structures and and more than the structures the the cultural meanings that they encode you know yeah so I think there's that and and I think Sarah is absolutely right in terms of 
collective uh, processing of grief and shock. Um, because however you shake it, though, I don't believe there were any injuries from this incident. No. Um, either way, it was context is highly traumatic, and so you need space to share that. Yeah. And perhaps if it weren't a majority secular country, or even, you know, I don't know how those numbers shake out either. Um, but <laughs> yeah, you still, regardless of the function of, of, uh, or how, how much religion is thriving in a space, you still need spaces where people get to, to be human together, which includes processing emotions. together. So I think she's right about a lot of things. And I told her I would give her the credit for that wisdom that I wouldn't just yes, steal sir. it. Oh, right. So shout out to for that. And Brian, I uh, want to go back to something you said. I don't think the wind's going to blow over the Eiffel Tower. I mean, it is kind of like, you know. Understood. Uh, yes, understood. It's a poor, poor example. But as soon as I said airplanes, it sounded like an event I wasn't trying to conjure. So then I went to wind. Mm-hmm. You know, just want to point Ogun out. is playing fact checker today. Just, just <laughs> well, I'm I like. I'm, listen, I'm a fan of sound metaphors, knowing I've not used sound metaphors a lot. <laughs> no, metaphors ultimately fall apart, but, you know, just, you know, strong bleeds going over the Eiffel Tower. No, I don't think. Yeah, yeah good call. Good call. Kind of. I mean, I, I think the one, the one challenge that I think is worthy to make is um, disproportionate attention on other attacks on places of worship in the last not attacks but you know other disasters in the last couple of weeks like the churches in louisiana black baptist churches um experiencing arson we suspect um Um, i would call those attacks i'm not sure why you would well because i i don't want to prejudge investigations but i'm assuming i'm assuming gotcha um and then uh thinking about the fire in jerusalem at the temple mount the mosque Um, I think that was accidental, but don't know for sure. And then um, a non-religious space, but that still functions as a collective spiritual space would be the Highlander Center, which experienced white supremacist arson recently. So like, there's a whole network of um, spaces where people are going through very similar processes of, of collective grief as, as the folks are in Paris. Yeah, Indeed. And, and the yeah. irony of Paris is, you know, or, or, I mean, early, early suspicions, early guesses is that it may have, the fire may have started out of um, maintenance equipment. Negligence, basically. Here to restore the place. Yep. Um, and over, and I also read that over the years, um, you know, as it, predominantly a stone structure, as stone pieces were damaged, some were replaced by wood um, to, for quick repairs over the centuries and that that kind of helped fuel the fire so mm-hmm. um kind of kind of a sad irony that that in efforts to repair you know more damage may have been caused but you know that's that's the that's the way it goes sometimes um and 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 for me it brings up that whole you know you know that that whole spiritual practice of non-attachment you know re, you know revering uh what these monuments stand for but at the same time not becoming so attached to them um that 
that we we lose ourselves if they are destroyed as well. So you know, where where's that middle ground? Because mm. because it is important to have monuments to who we are as a culture and how we've evolved as a people, and you know, nationally and internationally and stuff. But yeah, I don't know. No, I hear you. I think that's a good a good wrestling. All right, so let's hit some Holy Week stuff. Uh, there's a lot, of course, that that transpired in this uh, final week of Jesus' life, as recorded in the Gospels. Uh, I'm kind of kind of throw it out to you guys. Or do you want to talk um, the entry on Palm Sunday? Do you want to talk uh, temple stuff, Last Supper, Good Friday? What do you what What are you feeling? Well, I haven't written my Good Friday talk yet, so if we talk about it now, you know, <laughs> oh, well, that that might be after. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we? Let's first. Actually, I'm just going to pick one. So, um, okay. then why did you ask? You know, I, I, it's like I offer and then I take away. This moderator's privilege. Oh, man. Man. So, all right. So we'll get to Good Friday, but on the on the night before, uh, we call it Maundy Thursday, uh, and during the Last Supper, as Jesus is sharing. Um, some of the elements he uh, says as he holds the bread, this is my body. And then he shares it and he invites uh, his disciples to do this in a way to remember him. And then um, he takes a glass of wine and says, this is my blood, which is poured out for many. Some versions say for the forgiveness of sins, Uh, do this as often as you drink it. And I'm wondering how the two of you and your traditions and your own experience in the church, um, how you relate to what's going on there, as well as how the church practices remembering that occasion. Well, I I like to think of myself as a spiritual skeptic. And, you know, I read, I read these gospels and, and it's so hard for me to read them now and go, what did that really happen? Or, or is this after the fact insertion of things sure. to kind of make, make sense of what happened after the fact? Right. You know, that sort of rationalization. Um, none of the authors of the Gospels were there um, for, for, for the event. And, you know, the, the, the first, the first stories or gospels written about Jesus, you know, by Paul and he wasn't there either. Never even met Jesus. So, you know, but he uh, does reference this one event though, doesn't he? Out of all the historical things Paul references, uh, this is one. And he he glosses on it pretty solid. Right. So, I mean, so, so there's, so I don't, I don't doubt the event happened in any way, shape or form. I'm, I'm just always like, I got that spiritual skeptic cap on yeah i get that i get that when i read that um so so it's it would seem an odd thing to say um at a passover meal which is why they were there but at the same time it's i think jesus really saying to himself okay y'all i done gone and got myself in trouble i'm pretty much sure i know what's coming this literally might be the last time we sit down and do this so you know I would love to hear how that sounds in Aramaic. I done gone, got myself in trouble. Exactly. So, <laughs> so, so remember, don't forget me while I'm gone. You know. So, so I truly think there was this uh, this literal essence of of remember me because because sure. yeah. the trouble's coming. Yeah. I don't. I don't. Um, and and then you know we've we've taken it from there and 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 inserted a whole lot of theological and spiritual stuff onto it. But 
that's just kind of my take. Um, but I also look at it as this idea of, from more of a metaphysical perspective, this idea of um, um, honoring our, the divinity within ourselves. And when we are in community and sharing together, whether it be a meal or whatever, when we're in community and we are sharing, we, we are connecting with each other's divinity, that, that sense of oneness. So, so, so that's, that's what I take out of that as well. Nice, mm. nice. Keisha, what about you? I, I appreciate the interconnection uh, interpretation, Ogan, and that was the theme that stood out to me when I was rereading it today. Um, I was saying like before this happened that I think every time you all call me onto the show, it's like you're trying to get me disfellowship from my tradition. <laughs> it's, it's a really effective strategy. Good job, oh, guys. man. Um, you're good at what we do. Yeah. Mm, <laughs> Thank mm. you so much. So give, give us your official <laughs> answer here, and then we can go off the record later. <laughs> um, my official answer is that even in the text itself, there is some uh, internal disagreement between the sources around whether it was actually a Passover meal or whether right. it's not. Um, and this is, these little details have become more important to me over the last couple of years as I've been learning from my Jewish friends about what is, uh, what is appropriate and or inappropriate for Christians to, to do with our heritage, our, our shared heritage. Mm-hmm. And um, yep. so even, even the, the common story that it was a Passover meal that he was reinterpreting is, is one that what stuff that I'm reading now and learning from challenges even that premise. But even if it is not, even if it's just a meal of friends, um, a last meal for Jesus, um, given his subsequent execution. So he doesn't need to eat, but he does. And he does so in the context of people who are invested in his ministry, are invested in him and his friendship. I think that's meaningful on its own terms, regardless of the other stuff that's overlaid on it. Yeah. Um, I I love reflecting on eating as a way for us to remember our finiteness, our finite nature. Mm. The fact that we need, um, we're not uh, hermetically sealed units. We are in constant engagement with our environments. And part of that reflected it, reflection is coming through the food that we consume and then release um so we are uh, dependent on our environment dependent on the outside we are interdependent with nature and i find eating is one of the most humbling experiences and, and also potentially one of the most pleasurable experiences somebody might have um and here and here we have Bread, unless which is amazing. Unless it's, unless it's broccoli, and there's no pleasure in that. You know what? We can yeah. argue about that off, off, offline. Yeah, <laughs> love me some broccoli. I'm happy, happy to argue about that. Hey. Pleasure, <laughs> pl- pleasure, pleasure is relative, but it is entirely relative, and also <laughs> depends on people who can cook. So, Ooh, if you've true. not been around somebody who can deal with broccoli, you can come to my house, and I'll help you out. So, speaking of who can cook, I think it must have been some really good bread for Jesus to go that far and say, "This is my body." Like, yeah, you know. and really solid wine, which I think is appropriate when you hang out with your friends. Your friends deserve good stuff. There you yeah. go. Yeah, and I mean, if I know this might be my last night, I'm going to be drinking a lot of wine too. I'm, I'm just <laughs> a lot of wine, a lot of bread and butter, a lot I mean, of bacon. 
The story <laughs> says he was sweating blood the next day, but he could have been sweating something else. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know. Oh, so I, I love what you both have said. And uh, I think, yeah, there's multiple ways to take it. Um, you know, the church has done a number of things with this and argued about what's really happening when the church shares communion or the Eucharist. Uh, um, and, you know, like, is Christ really present in these elements? Is this uh, a mystical re reuniting with, with Christ? Uh, does this transubstantiate into the actual body and blood, uh, which I'll just go out on a limb and say, um, I don't think no. so. Um, and, or just no. <laughs> Um, with, Don't with all, with, with, I mean, with all respect to tradition, with respect. That that. yes, you know, with, I mean, with all respect, but no, with all respect, but no. <laughs> um, and, and I think, you know, I think as Keisha said, it is worth exploring or not assuming we know that this was a Passover. It seems to come in the context of Passover week. I mean, that's yes. why the pilgrims are coming. Yeah. And so there's the general atmosphere of Passover, whether this was an actual, you know, the Seder as we know it today wasn't even developed at that point. So was this sort of perhaps a proto Seder? Who even knows? That's all conjecture. Mm -hmm. We don't know that. And, uh, and too much unfortunate Christian um, theology has been this supersessionist theology that here Jesus is taking this ancient tradition and Christians have now made it about Jesus instead mm -hmm. of the tradition for its own terms in the redemption from Egypt and the, right. you know, the lambs that were offered in that context so long ago. And so I want to certainly disavow that, but I love, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say a lot of the supersessionism also comes from the text itself, which talks about new covenants. And as Ogan implied, I think yes. there's a lot of retrospective, uh, editorial privilege that the gospel writers assume when they both are retelling stories that were passed down through the early community and reframing them for the, the, the audience that they were writing to. So just as Paul, who, as we've said, did not actually meet a person named Jesus himself, right. um, but, but also uh, glossed on the stories that were told about him, he went through great detail um, to explain what he thought and what the community had said had happened in this upper room. And I think that there's a way that as pastors and storytellers, we are always telling new stories about the things that our communities hold dear. Yeah. So I think even if um, we might disagree on the, some of the theological explanations of the story, and even in that first generation, them trying to overwrite um, covenants between God and Israel as, as was the status quo then. Um, I, I feel like the core meaning that still holds value is this idea of interconnection and a contemporary practice of making a right of remembering interconnection. So even if there's no change of substance, there's a remembering in it that is really deeply valuable to me. Yeah. 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 Makes a lot of sense. Oh. I miss, I miss talking to you, Keisha, because of your eloquence. Like, retrospective, what did you say, retrospective? I don't know, I wasn't recording. I'm just, and I'm just like, someone just is. Like, that's so much better than just like making shit up, you know? That's oh, so she's bad. not making shit up. No, 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 she's not. 
you know, but that's, that's how I would have phrased it. No. And I, and I think it's so important to remember that distance between historical event and the recordings of them that we have, and that there is a time gap between the earliest writings of the church, whether we're talking about Paul or Mark as the earliest of the four gospels and certainly subsequent gospels, which seem to rely on Mark and or a possible other documents and, and certainly some oral tradition. But to believe that no theologizing or development is happening in that interim is, I think, fairly naive. And it clearly does happen. And people are coming to grips with this figure that was Jesus and with the end that he came to that was stunning and hard to reconcile with what they'd seen of his life and and a community formed in the wake of his life. And they were trying to frame it in terms they knew. And so there's a lot of Jewish language and concepts. But then even later, church takes these early shiftings and then develops theology out of the Jewish context, which does total disrespect to it and or ignoring it. And we end up in some of the you know unfortunate places we've gone to throughout history but all that said, there is great beauty in gathering with friends and sharing bread and wine. It's very earthy. And I loved how you said it it's, reminds us of our mortality. And I think that's a great bookend with Lent because we begin Lent with ashes and remembering that. And I like the idea of this meal sort of uh, augmenting that. Um, so I think that's beautiful and jesus we know spent so much time with earthy people and the people of the earth and and poor people and to share a meal in that context with the gifts of the earth with open hands is a is a beautiful thing now do we do we think so so much of the gospels refer to the 12 but we know there were many other followers and many other people in this ministry do we think it was just the 12 in at that meal or do we think like we had a room full of people there I, I've often assumed it's, it was a room full. Okay. I'd, mm. I've never assumed it was a 13-member dinner party. Wow, that's good. I haven't even thought about that very much. I've kind of, I've kind of naively stuck with the Michelangelo uh, you know, number count in my head, but we know yeah, because that we're guessing on a lot of the, the historical details. Yeah. Um, so. Because I think for me, it's like, we we it see there seems to be this implication that the disciples didn't know Judas was the betrayer until he showed up with the soldiers in the garden, and I'm like, was him not slipping away at supper like you know a giveaway, but if it's a room full of people, they probably didn't even notice he was there is that. So, the obvious uh, gap was like, where are the, where are the women? Because uh, there's women right. who follow Jesus from start to finish, and there is that obvious uh, gap There were for me. many more people there, and, and, it, and it also makes me wonder if they shared his sense of impending doom, or as, you know, if we excuse the retrospective edit- editing, was there really a sense of impending doom that he that they might have been feeling at that time? Yeah, that's um, such a good question. You know, it, it it would be fascinating to to have been there uh, to see. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, was there was there self awareness on Jesus or anyone else's behalf that this truly was a Last Supper, or is that entire framing after the fact? No. I, I don't know if we can know, but it doesn't seem that odd to me. Because if you think about any kind of active social movement that 
challenges state power or yeah. other kinds of power there's often a sense of being surveilled and and being threatened yeah and that, and to go back to palm sunday to make obvious public show that he did mm-hmm. you know my palm sunday talk was titled go big or go home <laughs> there you go <laughs> nice you know because that's that's what he did so i think yeah. he was clear he was poking the bear and it was only a matter of time yeah yeah i mean the analogy for me is is king's mountaintop sermon well, yes. he, he may not have known it was the, the last sermon, but right. there was a sense of uh, completion and um, there's a word I'm looking for. Foreboding is not the word, but like it's a, a sense of having done what one came to do um, and and also a sense of risk. Yeah. So if if that's the energy at your dinner party, I think anybody would have to be an idiot not to see it. Yeah. You, and you may be right. And I like that framing of it, a sense in which I've played my hand and whatever happens next is sort of out of my hands. And I know, and I know full well because of the hand I played what the outcome may be. And it may be, this is it. Yeah. So drink up. (laughs) Yeah. Just to bring a little poker analogy into, you know, Holy week. Oh, sorry. I think we we just lost everything you just said. (laughs) I said just to bring a little poker analogy into the final week, you know. Okay. Playing your playing your last hand. Sorry. All right. <laughs> we got it. Um, Not your best work, but we got it. <laughs> oh, brutal. Well, we we go through this weekly, Keisha. So I'm. We, we, we do, and 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 we give him credit when he says like like hilariously funny good stuff. We, yeah, which happened once. So you yeah. know, there's always there was that time. There was that time that <laughs> happened. Single tear. You know, <laughs> we don't, we don't, we don't pull punches here. <laughs> oh. <sighs> All right. Um, we want to go to foot washing or are you ready for Good Friday? Let's go to Good Friday. It's ready. Before we go there, I regret yes. using the word idiot to describe something foolish. Wait, what? I, I, I'm not sure I heard it. Yeah, I, but I heard it. So I, okay. I want to walk that back. Noted. There are, there are other words I could have used. Yeah. Thank you. Please don't hesitate when I say something idiotic to, to say that to me. I, I will take it. I, I'm not going to take it personally. I will truly take it as a reflection of my idiocy. And like my mother no. does not hesitate to call me that still. I'm for <laughs> it. Yeah, but it's, it's like it's off a piece with using um, uh, descriptions of mental illness to describe ignorance. Gotcha. All right. It's unnecessary. I, 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 got, I got where you're coming from. All right. So... Um, Good Friday, uh, the reformer Martin Luther called the death of Christ the great exchange. And through this view, Jesus took upon himself the penalty of humanity's sins, enacting and enabling forgiveness from God. Another view, as put forth by John Dominic Cross and among many others, uh, states Jesus called for nonviolent resistance to Rome and just distribution of land and food. He was crucified because he threatened Roman stability, not as a sacrifice to God for humanity's sins. So I'm wondering, which of these do you resonate more with? And is there some middle ground or, or option C that you might say around the meaning or meanings behind Jesus' death? Naturally, when you give me two options, I'm looking for the third. I knew it. I knew <laughs> yeah. it. I could see it in your face as I was saying I, it. I am... Totally predictable. Um, so 
I am reading Sisters in the Wilderness, The Challenge of Womanist God Talk by Dolores Williams. It's an old womanist theologian's classic. Nice. And she um she does a little overview of some of the historical uh atonement theories that include Luther's payment model and various others that you might yeah. look up um transactions and legal metaphors and payment metaphors economic metaphors ransom um, metaphor. right 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 and and theater moral theater that inspires us to love god because we see the depth of Ooh, I like how that. you know so there's there's as many directions one might go so yep. um her challenge is that uh none of these are ways of looking at the death and restoration of relationship between God and humanity are rooted in the lived experience of women or black women specifically. And so as an alternative or a set of alternatives, she thinks about atonement and salvation and the death of Christ, both in terms of the horrific violence of empire, um, which does merit a very clear eyed look. Um, and also thinking about, uh, Jesus's life as the source of meaning. So mm -hmm. not death, but life. Right. And then on the basis of that life, thinking about what's the vision of wholeness and good and connection and survival and resistance that his life lived ministry uh, leaves behind us. And then how does empire feel threatened by that vision and how does a community that is swept up and taken by that vision um put flesh on on its bones even after the founder is gone yes beautiful thank and, you and here we are all these centuries millennia later mm -hmm. putting flesh on the bone has been a fascinating tale you, you know yeah. um i i is obesity the right word I want to use? There, there's been so much piled on. Too now. much flesh on the bone. <laughs> there's been so much piled on now that I think maybe what was originally there, I mean, you know, the, 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 the remnants. Uh, and remnants is not the right word. Um, you know, so much effort is being made, I think, right now. And, and I think this also accounts for a lot of, um, of, of, of why churches have been shrinking is, is mm. how, do, how do we shed off those layers and get back to, you know, what, what was the core of the movement? What was the core of the revolution? What was, what was that original message? I mean, even that's open interpretation. And again, the difficulty with that is, you know, the, the best we have is these four gospels, which, you know, written with different viewpoints. We got letters by the man who never met Jesus. And and this is what we have to to tease out. So I mean, plus Mel know, Gibson's was, interpretation in the yeah, Passion of the Christ. Don't forget that. Can't can't forget that. It's 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 a complex thing, and yeah. um, so that's one side. But I think the benefit of that complexity um, is in like the stuff that Keisha just read. We can, for for each of our specific you know groups or views pull out some meaning, pull out what supports us, uh, which might lead to splintering, but I, I tend to view it as expansion. Yeah, it doesn't and, have and, to at and, all. And, 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 and a certain depth to it. Yeah, I, I, I don't even want to make it a problem that we have different perspectives on the thing. 
or that contemporary theologians have different explanations than people who lived in the Middle Ages did. I think, I think that's entirely appropriate. If something's important enough, then it will be re-engaged in each era yeah. according to our experiences and our shifting worldviews. I, I think we live in a, a different world of possibility than our many of our forebears even imagined. And in some ways that's terrifying. And in other ways, it means that we get to add to their meanings, our meanings. Yeah. And You're not making to... the problem, but, but many other people are. <laughs> well, sure. I think, I think um, having meanings in dialogue is a challenging experience for people who, who want to um, consolidate them or, or make only one supreme, which I don't think is how the world works in any in any avenue, but it's it's the way that many people would prefer it did. Um, but I think that part of being the latest uh, holders or bearers of this tradition means the responsibility, in fact, to apply uh, language and metaphors that are meaningful today and coherent today to the things that are of most value in our tradition. I think that's our responsibility. Amen. Amen. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing. As you said, it makes us own uh, our tradition, not merely regurgitate what we've been handed, but take that, wrestle with it, turn it over in, and, and do that in light of, as you said, the realities we're facing today that just weren't a part of uh, human life as many of these doctrines about Jesus' death developed, whether we're talking 500 years ago in Europe in the Reformation or in the Catholic Church before that or the early church councils or even these first early church councils or even these first um, recordings of the life of Jesus in the Gospels, which themselves were developments, I think, out of community, out of early community of Jesus followers as they're grappling with what meanings do we hold here. And so I think we're carrying on the tradition by doing that um, and I, you know, I grew up in a tradition that didn't have space for that, right? We had our interpretation of, of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, and there wasn't wiggle room. And it was, this is what it is. And it was mostly along the lines of this Martin Luther Reformation era view of the great exchange, right? Humanity has sinned, needed a subs- perfect substitute. Jesus offered himself. Now God is able to, you know, freely forgive us. But before that, there was an obstacle to forgiveness, Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I find that view problematic on any number of levels, but I love that there are so many other models, uh, some of which you both have already articulated at looking at what Christ's life and death. And I think when we focus only on the death, it's like, you know, I had someone at an early pub theology gathering come to me and he said, we were talking about some of this and he said, Jesus was, he only came to earth to die. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no, and I said, what about all his teachings? What about the healings? What about the meals? Uh, He's like, nope. The point of Jesus coming to earth um, was to die. That's so sad. And it was very, it was just so reductionistic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I remember growing up and uh, being reminded that, yes, the same view of Jesus died for our sins and was, you know, tortured and crucified and all this stuff. And to really pile on to the mental slash spiritual abuse of a young child, it was, you know, told every time we committed a sin, it was us giving Jesus another, you know, lash of the whip or us driving the nail into his hand. And I'm like, like that messed with me for so long, you know, 
and and talk about a you know reductionistic view of things that's like that's just bad theology on so many different levels i can't even begin to explain um so so no so i i i i no longer hold that that theological view of what the crucifixion was about yes i do lean more towards the uh you know the insurrectionist um punishment and and i think it's important to to note here how how that insurrectionist punishment is is unfortunately viewed through an anti-semitic lens um yeah and and which is not the case i mean you know here here a group of people who know who knows what happens when you rebel against rome they don't they you know rome's not gonna take the time to figure out who did what to whom and who's they're gonna just they're gonna just wipe everybody out they're gonna raise the town they're gonna just like you know so here's a group of people who are legitimately fearful and concerned for their life and way of being you know you know had i been there in their shoes i don't know i would have done it any differently either uh so 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 you know, I just want to make sure to mention that and 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 to say it's 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 a it's an interesting. It always baffles me that this this anti-Semitic approach to it from from some elements of of, of Christendom. Well, I mean, you also have to remember what's happening on the ground as these things are being written. Right, Rome is this real power and this real threat, and yeah. much easier to throw um, Jewish people sort of uh, in the way or under the bus, so to speak. And say, hey, look, Rome, you know, uh, we're not going to blame you. We're going to blame these folks. But actually, historically, most historians would say what we do know about the light, about Jesus of Nazareth, uh, about his existence, one of the number one things is that he was killed by Rome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and at a time that was, you know, that was known for um, uprisings, this, you know, this, this, this Passover time was, was a time when the zealots loved to make a big show when, right. you know, um, and, and why, why, uh, supposedly Pilate was there. In Liberation town. was in the air. Yeah. 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 Why Pilate was there in town in the first place to personally squelch any sort of uprising. Yeah. And, you know, here comes Jesus riding in on parade day saying, you know, check the out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I'm surprised he made it through the whole week. <laughs> yeah, really? Right. Oh my goodness. Um, but 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 what you know the thing I mentioned on Palm Sunday was again the 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 message is the message there is the is the same message he was given his entire life. Like you know what are 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 you gonna choose you know love, compassion, kindness, generosity. You know, are you gonna are you gonna choose these higher values, or are you gonna live from from control, or even live from fear, or live yeah. from all these other other places? And and to to do that on that day was was truly a again a statement of really what matters, what matters here in this scenario. And I am willing to put my life on the line uh, to to show it. Uh, I, I I can't I can't believe that you know, he would think he was getting out of there <laughs> after, after doing that. Um, but, but then the theological um, um, meaning that was placed on it, I think um, in many ways has done a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. It's done a lot of damage to, to Jesus's story and mission to begin with, because to your friend's point, that's what we focus on now. 
and totally skip over all the other lessons and all the other great things that he said and did during that week. Um, you know, it was a full week of him saying amazing things. That this is this is the week I think which you know is this a week Good Samaritan came out of this week or maybe not. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. Somebody, I don't know if we can place that. Remind me, yeah. but but um, if I if I was a good student, like he should have done some reading before the show. But you know, <laughs> I, I, Ouch. I, was, I was no, no, ever, that was a compliment ever, I'm, to you. I'm, I'm ever a nerd. Like that's also not going to change. So. No, that was a compliment to you. Not not. <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to. No, no, you you, you did it the right way. Saying I, I should have looked that up before I opened my big mouth. I think like the there there could have been or could still be um redemptive use of the the death narrative I guess is a good way to put it um yeah. if it helps us build actual solidarity with people who are facing state execution in our time like that could be a, a very fruitful challenge that the story uh, gives to us today um if we accept as Brian said that Jesus was executed by the state, then what about the people who are currently facing execution and what's our responsibility to them and how do we engage the uh, capital punishment establishment in, in our countries and um, how do we, to take a step back, then think about people and people groups that uh, face um, social scapegoating that we use to vent our fear about um, state violence or fear about economic insecurity or that we allow fear mongers to help turn us uh, against. Um, There are so many, so many possible ways that the the story as horrific as it is could still edify us in, in ways that help us be better community members rather than focusing us or turning us back in on ourselves and having us get into the whole, uh, if I slip up and have uh, another beer or whatever, then I'm just as bad as the person who uses his wrists or like a really disproportionate sense of, um, of priority and significance, I think often comes out of the usual way of looking at things. Yeah, and and I like uh, the way that uh, Brian McLaren has framed this uh, in thinking about Good Friday. He he says it this way, where do you see God on Good Friday? Is he on the side of of Rome putting Jesus to death in order to fulfill some, you know, preordained cosmic theological plan or do you see God on the side of Jesus resisting the powers that be forgiving people all the way to the end, even as they're putting him to death and providing this model of selflessness, of nonviolence, of compassion, even to our enemies. And for me, that just, you know, I remember reading that some years back and it was just like, oh man, (laughs) you know, there goes that old atonement substitution theology just out the window. Like I just can't hold it. You know, it's just too untenable. And, 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 and a sense of, of surrender as well. I mean, he he wasn't there alone. I mean, you know, you've got the 12, you've got all the other followers, all His those mother. people who were, you know, mother. waving the branches. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, I was just reading something the other day saying th- those were 
likely not the people who were shouting crucify him later on that that was probably a crowd um that that was brought in for the theater the moment um so so i think if in that moment of arrest and trial he really wanted to you know say to all the people who were following him you know come help me out come start something they probably would have mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so so in essence to 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 be a a, a presence for peace and surrender in that moment perhaps and perhaps here's me you know pacing my own theological um, um, interpretation on what happened um, as well but but I think that to your what you were talking about there Brian that that nonviolent um, stance right. that that he may have taken intentionally I think speaks volumes so uh, you know I see we're approaching our time, perhaps some are going to wonder, you know, our thoughts on what happened on Easter morning, but perhaps it's best to leave that as a teaser for next week. And maybe you can tune into your local faith community to see, uh, see not, how, how that plays Easter out. Easter. I'm not talking about Easter after Easter. Let's, let's eat, let's either wrap it up here or no, I, no, I wait. Really? After Easter. Once Easter's done, you're done. You're not, I'm, you don't I'm, want to talk I'm, about it anymore. I'm, I'm Listen, I told you, it, I tell you, in two weeks, my church is doing this 25th anniversary celebration, and my brain is like switching gears. It's it's my brain is like 80 percent that right now, 20 percent Easter, and once once that Easter talk is done and I sit down, yeah, I'm coming back to this. Uh, so we don't have to talk about it a lot, but let's keep you know, it concise. I, yeah, I think I think the thing that I would say is a thing that I kind of sort of said in my previous response, which is the meaning of resurrection as Williams describes it in Sisters of the Wilderness is the life of the ministerial vision gaining victory over the evil attempt to kill it. The life of the ministerial vision gaining victory over the evil attempt to kill it. And to me, that speaks to the life-giving capacity in the gospels that Jesus taught and lived to inspire generations and generations and generations of people to live differently, to be fundamentally reoriented in terms of their relationship to each other, in terms of their relationship to earth, in terms of their relationship to, to life and state and uh, choice making. Um, and even when that vision that they're, uh, and we are captured by, um, faces resistance from powers and principalities and whomever, um, there's still this faith testimony that this uh, insistence by hope that that vision will triumph over violence and attacks and uh, attempts to undermine it. So I, I think I think the resurrection is pretty much the strongest faith symbol that Christianity still has. Yeah, yeah, I like I like I like that. And so you, you what we would say in unity, which I think is the other side of that same coin is this idea of we, we awaken to our divinity. When, when we have that realization of the inherent divinity that we are and we live from that, that's, that's the resurrection that's coming alive. And I think what you said is, is kind of basically the same thing where the, the, the message um, and, uh, um, out, out, outlives that which would try to squelch it. So, mm-hmm. so within ourselves, you know, when we live from love, 
and and speak from love we are we are outliving all the you know cultural fears that that that, that try to squelch us down the, the the cultural norms that would tell us it's not okay to to be a voice of compassion for others to help others as jesus did um so to live from that place that's that's resurrection so it's it's in for, for us it's not an event for us it's an everyday occurrence <laughs> Um, and I think the the value in the womanist perspective is it's not just every day, but it's also collective. So it's not yes. an individual raising, yes. um, but it's a collective experience and a collective process, a collective re-engagement. Uh, and I, I think that's a, a, a fairly unique value um, in our time when there's a tendency for religion to isolate and atomize people. Yes. So we, we, try to get whatever good stuff we can get out of our traditions for ourselves for our own personal journeys what have you but i think the value in this particular way of viewing it is that we rise and fall as a species and we rise and fall in groups and, as, and in families and, and as in communities um, and whatever theologies we develop i think whatever can serve and nurture that sense of collective responsibility is worth is worth it yeah. Yeah. Beautifully said. I think one of the, one of the things that I tend to be try, try to be a little wary of is this sort of triumphalistic uh, theology that can come out of Easter. Like, Hey, we've, we've won or, or death is conquered or Jesus came out on top and eat it, Satan and death and evil and everybody we don't like. And I think that lacks the humility and the and the self-sacrifice that the way of Jesus invites us to. Like if we're not willing to lay down our lives uh, literally and in every other way for um, one another and certainly for the marginalized in our communities and in our world, then we shouldn't be jumping on to the next step because it's the it's the sacrifice that brings new life. It's the, it's the giving of ourselves. It's the selflessness and the service. Um, and then um, giving it all to God in faith that, that then produces the seeds for new life. But if we jump ahead, I think we shortcut power of resurrection theology. That works. See, we covered it. Boom. Don't need to come back. Easter done. <laughs> Did it, man. Yeah. Wow. Any, any, any final words, friends, any final words of wisdom? Well, uh, to my fellow clergy out there for whom this is, can be a pretty full um, and intense week, just, you know, take care of yourself, pace yourself. Um, don't worry about getting it all in. We, we're going to do this again next year. <laughs> after that, so just breathe and, and, and make sure to build some extra self-care time next week. Mm-hmm. Blessings to all y'all. Well, thank you, friends, for tuning in to Pub Theology Live. You can connect and spread the word on social media. You can listen anytime on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or iTunes. And of course, we'd love you to rate us uh, on iTunes. That helps us hear what you think about the show and helps others find the show. And you can, of course, watch us on YouTube or IGTV. And if you'd like to sit down with some people in your area at uh, a local pub theology gathering, 
check out the official directory at pubtheology.com. And if you don't see one near you, there are some resources to help you start your own. And don't forget to show your support for the show by becoming a sponsor on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash PT live to get started. Until next time, friends. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Special thank you to our special guest, Keisha. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to. Yep. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. You were, you were rolling into until next time. I had, I I was, but I I was going to, I was going to thank her in the sort of music break, but I will do it now. Thank you, Keisha. You're welcome, Brian. Thank you. You, You're, you're more than welcome for for, delight. yeah, I'm raising, raising, I think, the intellectual discourse on the show. And raising the bar every time. So, so many ways. Um, so just out of curiosity, if folks listen to this and they're like, ooh, I want to find out more about Keisha because she's clearly the smartest person here right now. Um, is there a place online they can find you or check you out or anything? Yeah, they can follow me on Twitter. There you go. There it is. Which is at? At Mackenzian. M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-I-N. At Mackenzian. There you go. Awesome. Now you can play yourself, my friend. Go ahead. Well, hey, until next time, friends, drink responsibly and keep those conversations flowing. Here's where I was going to say thank you, but I think Ogan was better, and clearly only one of us is drinking on the show today, so thank you, Ogan. <laughs> well, can't thank her over the music bed, man. You'll never hear anything. Come on. We gotta, Please, gotta, you know, once we start talking, you usually lower it. <laughs> we got we to gotta highlight the guests. Uh, but, yes, thank you very much, Keisha. So appreciative. Yes. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Um, it is good to see you, uh, you Keisha, too. and really uh, just grateful for for you being you and really taking us uh, deeper on some of these you know familiar overly familiar uh, topics of holy week so thank you and and i don't think you're gonna get excommunicated today you didn't say anything that inflammatory in the least you know, but you're good I, I just never know <laughs> my my uh, my measurement stick is a little off <laughs> i think on if by now it hasn't happened i think you're good and honestly, after hearing after hearing you every time, I think people ought to be like, "How? How? If we haven't talked to this uh, person yet, how do we do that? And how do we get her on our team?" So exactly, you're good to go. All right, I I gotta go get dinner. Adieu, everyone. Happy Easter, and, and to you. see you on the other side. Peace. Be well. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.